This is episode 22, part 2, Questioning Beliefs. In this episode, my close friend Leo and I discuss a very personal topic we both share in common, a life event known to many as deconstruction, an intense period where one begins to systematically question and dismantle inherited beliefs. Being brought up in religious families, we both have been somewhat private about this topic, but Leo and I have shared many hours of conversation around our experiences struggles, and realizations during this challenging time in our lives. The conversation segues from Leo's career as a computer programmer to a fascinating meta-conversation about how groups all over society encode belief and why this is so influential. We also talk about how an inherited sense of shame may lead to burnout and depression. This is part two of two, but we felt this segment stands on its own. So feel free to start here and catch part one in our feed when you subscribe. This is the Language of Creativity Podcast. I was wondering, what is programming? Programming is basically creating a list of instructions. It's basically a how-to document for a computer. How-to document authoring, right? You're figuring out, given this stuff, this information, can I get to here? And how do I do that? Going back to the geometry that we touched on earlier, is just like the, how do I take all these different things that are kind of abstract and get from here to there. So in how-to things, it's how do I tell a person, you know, they're trying to install a door. What are the steps to do that? So end result. And so programming. that is not crooked. Yes. <laughs> and so in programming, you're doing the same thing, except for instead of telling other people, you're telling a computer how to do right. to get given these things, get from here to there. So... Same way as you look up a how-to, you probably go to Home Depot site eventually or something or, you know, some blog, and they've stepped through all these different things. How do you check this? How do you do this? How do you do this? And that's really what programming is doing, except for your inputs, you know, whether it's users or equipment is what's driving it. And then you're telling it what to do with it. And so it's basically, you know, it's programming in basic form is really... How do I solve this problem? Well, and a bug would be when the person installing the door accidentally puts the door handle on backwards because your instructions were unclear. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or like the door jam yeah. doesn't line up with the hook, the door thingy goes in. Or because the manufacturer, manufacturing was outsourced on these hinges and so their quality control wasn't enough. And so now it screwed up your whole project because you're depending on that. So in an expert door person what do you call that career carpenter no it's not a carpenter there's a there's an actual like it's not haberdashery it's no uh, <laughs> what there's a there's a, a sash an exasper sash and door person would be able to probably make it work because they have the experience to make the adjustments but that would be 
or they just know not to do it in the first place. That would be input from an outside system (laughs) for a computer because a computer, until they become artificially intelligent, is not going to make those fixes for themselves. Exactly. Right. And so the programmer, you know, at least for hinges, that's like choosing the right library, the right service to integrate with, you know, knowing whether it's good enough quality to really use or not in your system. Right, um, which is why you have certain systems that are always buggy, no matter what. They're going to cause all kinds of problems. And then once it's just work, they're more elegant. They yes. are more user-friendly because they tend to not foul up as much. Well, and they might be driven by people that aren't trying to get complicated. You know, well, you told KISS me that- is a really good thing. Keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> K-I-S-S, right. <laughs> well, you know, and also I think that's what was interesting. You're the one who told me that OS X, because when, when I started on Mac uh, with Wendy, the they used to be on OS 9. So that was kind of the iteration of the Mac OS for a long, long time. And OS X was so revolutionary because it was based on Unix. Yes. So the permissions were a lot cleaner. The files, the things didn't get as mucked up. Way more secure by nature. Yeah. And um, that was actually a little tangent, but the next OS. So when Steve Jobs was yes. ousted from Apple, he started a company called Next, was basically developing OS X in this other company. And then he got invited back to Apple and they made well, he it was, OS X. He was developing developing next OS. Yeah. It, that was their system. And yeah, it was one of the variants of Unix, which from its ground up was built for being multi-user, for being network friendly. You know, all that stuff was integrated into its core. And so, and yeah, a lot of it was open source. And so there's a lot more people actually finding the bugs and solving them. Oh, so part of that, part of the benefit to the open source system is that many, many users means the chance that that 0.01% of times where that weird thing happened will happen and, and get documented. that potentially the company that was running into that problem could solve it. Right. Whereas like with Windows, you can't solve it <laughs> yourself. You have to rely on them creating a bug fix. You know, it's, so it's no kind way. of more of a solve it yourself kind of like, you know, in ethos. At then. least gives you the ability to. Sure. And so, yes, it was a mix. There was closed source, open source, blah, blah, blah. You know, it was mixed. But there's a lot more likelihood that you could actually figure out how to solve your problem if it was that one thing that was holding you back. So run me through your favorite programming language from a very basic layman's perspective. Well, I would say right now the probably my favorite is JavaScript slash TypeScript. Okay. Which is what runs in your browser. So literally, you can open your browser, open up the inspector, which is command option I or what I think control shift I on or con- control alt I on Windows. But everybody on your computer go look and <laughs> look at all the gibberish that's going to come up when you do that. But literally, you can open up that console and you can start typing code right there and run it. Oh. And you can actually interact with the page right there and do things to it. <laughs> and so JavaScript, man, I don't know where to, where to go with that. That's a broad question. It um, is. So let's say what could JavaScript do in like a single function? Like let's say something like changing the color of the background or something like that. That's ideally more your CSS. Okay. <laughs> so that's more your separation of concerns. Okay, so let's say but we wanted honestly, to create an action when I mouse over a certain So if you image. wanted to... Just do a confirm box, ask okay or cancel, right? 
you literally confirm, type in quotes, the text that you want, and then just log the result. And confirm that, Steve is awesome. Yeah. Confirm parentheses, Steve is awesome. Close parentheses, hit enter. That will pop up a box. Is Steve is awesome like the output that the computer shows in the box, like yeah. in text? Yeah, exactly. Okay. That's, and then what's the action like, right? So it's expecting a user action of clicking a certain yeah, thing. But that's all built in for you. And so, so there's those, a function called it. Yeah. It says that. That's called confirm. And so those buttons, the okay and cancel buttons are there. And literally it will just return a true or false and you can do whatever you want with that. Right. So it's exactly like proofs, like you said, like yeah. true or false. The world is real. False. <laughs> What does real mean? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Define real. See, and I guess that's where it gets a little bit murky, right? Like, I I see... I want to go here, but I don't want to go here yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you were talking about languages um, and how programming is basically a language and a set of known... It's that author. Programming is that authorship. It's, and that's why they're called languages to some degree is because it's really just, and that's why, you know, there's people that are trying to build natural languages, like using English or whatever your native tongue is to write programs. There have been those types of initiatives. Right. But that's why computer languages tend to <laughs> stick because that's really, really hard. Yeah. Um, well, that's why, like, my son's Ozobot is so cool. I mean, it uses little, like, dish dash dot different colors, and then the robot will see that and do certain actions, like turn around or turn left or right. Oh, yeah. Based on the series of dots. And, and that's like learning coding uh, is learning that, like, sort of linear path of, you know, what is the, the language and what does that make it do? And then once you learn that, those are, like, the building blocks for your Yeah, that is literally programming. programming. Yeah. And there's a certain level of understanding that you have to assume. Like one of the things that I learned from my intro to programming class was that you actually have to instruct the computer on how to turn the screwdriver. So you have to say, pick up screwdriver. Okay. <sighs> like in a, in a sense, like at the most basic level, yes. you know, there's all these things that we as humans assume that we know how to do. Like that is a big part of the foundation of like, would that be considered a library? Like if I have a library of activities, like I know how to drink a water. So I, if you say drink water, I automatically pick up glass well, and, that's and your... put to my lips and I know the swallowing subroutine happens and, yeah. and then I just don't think about it. I just but put that, it back down. But that's where you're getting into your, even your levels of languages. So your low-level languages, assembly, which is basically one step away from binary, you know, ones and zeros, right? On and off. It's really close to the hardware. Right. That is literally having to do every, how do you tell this muscle to fire and this other muscle and this other muscle and this other muscle to, to grab the water bottle, not it, let alone drink it, right? So it could go down like infinity layers. Yeah, so that's, you your, that's your low level. Your high-level languages is pretty much, it's aware of plastic, and it's aware of water, and you sell, tell it, okay, put plastic in water, and then it knows that there's an arm, so tell arm move, right? Right. And so a lot of that typically is your higher level, you're dealing with quite a bit more simplified. 
in ways. And then you, yes, you have libraries on top of that, which go, okay, so say my body is a library. I literally say arm move, you know, it's. And then arm move causes all those little micro things to happen. Yeah. In your muscles and Someone your else and- programmed that. I don't have to touch it. <laughs> and yeah. so once you're talking HTML and CSS and all those types of things, those are very high level where those things literally, they exist in their little microcosm of the browser and that's it. Right. So HTML is not necessarily going to run your car. No. It's for delivering information on a page. Now, if you have a display in your car, it might be running on that display. Right. But that's because it's built for doing displays. That's it. (laughs) So when you're working with your programming, you're working with these different languages that have been established to do certain things. Yeah. Yeah, in a lot of ways. And so like PHP is very much designed for doing server type programming. All the functions that it has and the libraries that it includes are made for accessing a database. And how do I manipulate that information and return it to the browser? Or how do I write out an HTML page based on all this data? Stuff like that. I was trying to remember your last question. I don't remember it either, but what I was thinking (laughs) was that this is also similar to law in a way, because law is the same thing. It's building on top of language and an existing library of laws and Mm -hmm. precedents and things like that that are set. I also would imagine that society does the same thing, except a lot of it's unwritten. Like we have a certain number of expectations and mores and ways to do things. Like in our society, we kind of assume that everyone's driving to work. Because we live in, you know, Western, wealthy Western society. So most everybody has a car. But, you know, if you went to India and you had to get by without a car, it would be a culture shock because it's not a part of your routines. It's not a part of your subroutines or your programming. Yeah. You know. And in some ways it's unfortunate that that a lot of it's written because it's so confusing sometimes. (laughs) Well, I think maybe that's what draws certain people to something like programming where everything is so laid out in a way. Like there's some comfort in that, isn't it? As much as I abstract stuff and I'm breaking down into little pieces, those pieces are still somewhat concrete. Right. There is a base that I'm building on, even if I am building a house out of blocks. You know, it's, I do have these blocks. And the way I think about the blocks might be smaller blocks than regular programmers, but they're still blocks. And then you get into reverse engineering. I mean, there's something like consciousness which is like, how does this work? Yeah. And so I feel like there's all these models we build on top of consciousness, like the MBTI, to try and explain an aspect of it, but it's really not it. It's not the totality of it. There's something much more going on than that. It would be like if we had encountered a computer and watched it do a video or watched it do VR or all these things, and like we had no idea how a computer worked. Yes. All of a sudden, it's like this magic. Well, it's basically like if... You had a tablet mounted it on a wall and it controls your, all your AC and everything else. You don't have a clue what it's doing most of the time. You don't realize all these ducks have little gates and things in them to control the different zones. And it's like all this weird stuff going on. And literally on the wall, it looks like you just move the slider up to make it warmer or colder in different zones. You bring up lights here, lights there, you know, and just. 
And for some people, it's just <laughs> enough to just slide the slider to cooler or warmer. Exactly. And some people have exactly. born with that innate, but how to, to do that? <laughs> yes. I got to take this apart. What a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, the, yeah, there's people like me that somehow during college worked in maintenance and understands that there's this whole HVAC system behind all, all these things. It's me always understanding the systems help me use the systems. It oh, helps yeah. me maximize the systems. I feel like that in audio engineering when I'm producing and I'm recording engineering, there's a certain thing of like, for some reason, I'm not a guitar player. I'm really good at dialing in guitar tones. Somehow intuitively, I like kind of know what the knobs do. And I, I play with them enough to go, oh, it's kind of doing that. Okay. It's kind of like doing this. And I understand just enough about the circuit. I don't know electronics, but I know just yes. enough about what electronics does to sort of feel between the tones. And if I know, like I just give it a little bit more on the, on the presence, it's going to just, okay, it's letting that transient come through. And then I developed this language post facto, for me, the thinking (laughs) comes later of like, oh, the reason that that did that was because that's helping the transients come through more and what he's playing. And it's just, and it's hitting and saturating that tube just the right amount to get that segment, that, that section he's playing to come out right. Yes. And, but I figure that out. After I do it, like for me, it's this intuition of like feeling it. Oh, that feels really good. Okay. And then I can like sort of add the explanation on after the fact. Like, yeah. And sort of. Well, to, that, yeah. That's where the intuiting kind of, it looks like magic, right? <laughs> intuition looks like magic because you're making these leaps of logic that seem like completely out of the blue, but they're not. That's why when you go back, yes, you can rewind and go, oh, this is why. I thought this, but because you've got that intuiting part of you, you're making those jumps subconsciously. It's almost like an emergence. I think there are emergent properties and systems that don't become apparent until much later. Yeah. That's the idea behind big data. Collect all the data across a large number of people, and then you can find these emergent properties that we would have never known about had we not like looked at all of the interactions. Yeah. And I think a good scientist is the one who knows what questions to ask or what data points to try and extrapolate. You have to, to kind of know what, what that might be to what to look for. And we are incredibly slave to our assumptions and the things that we think to look for too whatever it is that we are our biases in other words so if we if we have a certain bias toward the way that the universe works for example then we're gonna always look at it through that lens until we don't until something shakes our perspective loose and helps us to see things yeah from a different perspective So when I was a kid, I had been exposed to a number of different groups that were religious or otherwise. And I started to notice commonalities as I got older between, let's say, like corporate culture and the idea of like having a big retreat or event to get everybody like 
keyed in on what yes. corporate objectives were and thinking outside the box and dynamic convergence and all these other things. You, you get people like fired up and understanding this lingo that means a certain thing to a certain group of people. And it was like also the same in churches. I went to the schools I went to were Christian schools and there were certain languages within church school. And then I went to some churches that were different denominations and different subset of beliefs within Christianity, but they all had certain known things that this is the way we do things. Yes. This is the way we think. This is the way. And, yeah. and even to the point where some of my Christian schools were like, we want to teach you a particular worldview. Yes. Because your worldview totally affects who you become. Like, oh, yeah. It affects your outcome. It affects, you know, so it's very important in this these church schools that I went to that say, you know, we're teaching worldview and we're teaching you how to think. We're teaching you these certain set of things so that you will always play within this box. You will always, you know, be this certain way. And it was funny because I saw some commonalities with politics. Like, I don't want to go into politics on the show, but it was funny because some of those <laughs> things that I heard on the radio, like were very common to what I heard in churches and certain values that would get imparted. This means this, and that doesn't mean this. And you never ask these questions and people who think this are bad. And, but it's not just in church. It's also in any group setting, you're almost formulating an operating system by which a group of people can cohere and yes. create a set of behaviors to encourage the emergence of a certain outcome yeah. or a certain style. Well, and we've talked about this before, way back in the past, especially around the time that Steve Jobs passed on mm -hmm. and left Apple. And we talked about how, you know, he made this huge change, right? coming back to the company and they were floundering bad and he within five years brought them to the top of everything. Right. <laughs> as far as I feel that, like the same thing happened goes. when Jack came back to Jack in the box, but <laughs> <laughs> Go yes. On. And so, but that was part of the thing was when you're doing all those innovative things, then it gets that way. And things are moving and things are happening and people are excited. Right. And then you get an accountant that takes over the company because now all the investors step in and go, well, we want more of the same. We want these solid profits. We want them stable. And, You're talking about Tim Cook. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. But this happens across cultures. And so corporate cultures, especially, this often happens to companies. You know, you get these startups, they're moving fast, they're developing whatever. And then once the investors get involved more, once it's more... Once there's a thing. Yeah. And we do this thing, we make this car, we make this product. Now, and that's what, now that's what makes wanting, us our cash cow. They're wanting their return on investment and they want stability. Right. And that's where stuff starts pivoting. And so you see this happening, and that's partly why you have so many denominations. Right. It's because each of them starts, oh, someone gets this idea and starts moving, and it gets pushed, and and there's this drive behind it, and there's this group of people that are excited. And then eventually, instead of being a movement, it becomes a denomination and starts getting a corporate culture, and now we're having to all of a sudden go – these are our beliefs and you don't follow all these beliefs, then you're not really part of us. Everybody else wants to know, how do I follow? Yes. Yes. Right. Right. And that's interesting instead because being, we're sitting here. Instead of being all, you know, we're all on individual paths, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of having 
everyone's past, you know, and they're going to be at different places. They're okay. No, no, we're trying to, now we're going back to that factory setting where you're trying to get everyone in step in line, you know, marching the same way because well, we that's wanna stable. Create, we want to <laughs> ensure this outcome. We yes. like this outcome. It makes us dividends. Like it gets us, it, it keeps us all employed and this, the company has grown and all those yes. people to feed. We need that stability. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. almost like you attract the people who are like, oh, well, you know, first the, the iPhone's like, what the fuck is an iPhone? And yeah. then pretty soon it's like, uh, everyone has an iPhone, duh. Like we can't even remember <laughs> not having an iPhone. And so it, I think it'll start to attract the late adopters and those people start to, and then the cutting edge people are, you know, the people who think different, who challenge everything and the people, yeah. and those kind of people are a little fringy. I mean, it's like almost like, oh, yeah. so I wanted to say that, you know, we're sitting here having this conversation on the Sabbath. Yes. It's a Saturday. It's a three day weekend. Oh my God. It feels so nice. Like it feels so three day weekend ish. Three-day weekend? What's that? Oh, my goodness. Well, yeah, you're self-employed. I know, same here, but I'm always a teacher. So, and, you know, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, the Sabbath, it's like that comes from Judaism. Yeah. And that was like one of the most special parts of their code. That was, you know, in the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath. Yes. And keep it holy because God himself. Yes. Rested on the seventh day. And that's a code in their code of laws. And actually you look at Judaism and their whole religion was based around this very strict code of laws, ethics, health codes, all these things. And so that was like in the beginning of the society when they started to incorporate code of laws into their technology. This religion was actually kind of a technology that helped make this group cohere to certain certain things that would help it to be unique and that was also very very we're set apart we're different so yeah and so you grew up in a christian denomination that is mostly known for being set apart because you are the seventh day Adventist. adventist yes and so unlike most churches in the world which celebrates church on sunday mm-hmm. you take the ten commandments and honor the sabbath and keep it holy yes so and everyone else that you know didn't was you know being led astray by the devil <laughs> well, and also, you know, the, the question even comes up in, in the Gospels where, you know, the religious leaders were mad at Jesus for podcasting on Saturday. Oh, yes. <laughs> right. I mean, sorry, no, for picking fruit or something on Saturday. Right. Well, so it was his disciples were picking grain and threshing you know, because they were taking the husk off to eat it mm-hmm. as they were walking through the field. I mean, <laughs> seriously, yes, it's just like you define work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, define work. And that's so that's where the legalism comes in. And it, but it's interesting because, you know, I don't know much about Seventh Day Adventism, but from talking to you and others in that at one time. As you were saying with Steve Jobs or Tim Cook, at one time, Seventh-day Adventism was actually very, like, cutting edge. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And tell me a little bit more about that, like, uh, just as a short version. Well, I mean, it came out of the Great Disappointment thing. It was Millerites and whatever back in 1840s, basically this huge movement that Jesus is going to come on 1844, October or something. And so then, I mean, they were crazy enough that they actually weren't harvesting their fields and all this stuff. It got out of hand. And so they had this great disappointment, of course, because we're still here. Sell all your possessions <laughs> and wait for the coming of Christ. Yeah, I mean, it's well, like. Well, don't yeah. even worry about selling it because, I mean, it's, it doesn't matter at the end, right? Uh, right. Because you can't really take it with you. So <laughs> I mean, so not to judge because like hail right? 
like the yeah. the doomsday cult that everybody you know uh-huh. killed themselves before this comet because comet was supposed to bring uh-huh. up these aliens and all this stuff and yeah maybe on their dimension they actually that actually happened for them <laughs> but you know in our dimension yeah <laughs> they're all dead and so you got this and so then you have all these people because it was a massive movement it was worldwide and then you got all these people that are going okay what really happened and so then it kind of grew out of that and doing more study and blah, blah, blah. So in other words, like this didn't work out the way it was supposed to, but let's still like figure out why. Yeah. Because the information wasn't wrong. We just made a mistake. Yeah. Okay. And so then there was this lady that a lot of, some people called a prophetess. She never claimed it. She was the bearer of this message that a lot of people latched onto. And so then they started this movement and putting their beliefs out there as well. And it was very, very fluid. I mean, there was tons of disagreements over different philosophies and theological ideas and whatever. And so there was no, like, you know, single Adventist truth. I mean, there were some basics. As Christianity in general, there's some basics that are common, like, you know, one true God type of idea. Mm -hmm. And so, especially back then, because it was, it did get roots and started happening around the world, of course, ideas are going to develop much more differently and slowly because we didn't have the internet then mm-hmm. and whatever. And what? So, yeah. But then just like everything else, all of a sudden it got enough momentum and enough mass that they had to start creating churches and then creating groups over those churches to make organization easier. Like governing bodies. Governing bodies. And, you know, because you have to interact with the government because of taxes and everything else. Mm -hmm. So then that even creates even more of that type of stuff. Once you get enough people into it, now they're going, well, who are we? Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, no longer are you movement because you've got to put down these pillars. You got to say, this is what we believe. So then the church put together their 27 fundamental beliefs. Initially, they did put in the caveat that this is what we generally believe. Mm -hmm. You know, not everyone is. But now it's gotten to the point where it's kind of here is if you want to be an Adventist, this is what you believe. If you don't believe those, then you're not really Adventist. And that was so opposite of what those earlier founders wanted because they were very much if you want to be an Adventist, be an Adventist. Uh-huh. We're not going to say you're wrong about your certain belief or whatever. We might disagree with you. But I think those people that were very much a part of things changing realized that ideas evolve. Hmm. And so to say something is wrong is to say, is to put down <laughs> put down a, an a absolute. Con- yeah, an absolute. You know, yeah. you're putting down a concrete footing. Right. And you're now getting stuck to that. And so right. no longer are you what would be called a movement. You're now a denomination because you have these pillars. And so you can't really move. Yes. Additions get added. They might tear down a certain part of it, but there's a building and yeah. And one of the most, I, I don't know all the 27 pillars. I'm going to ask you to recite two or three of them. But <laughs> one of the things that I noted the most about Adventism was that most Adventists are vegetarian. Yes. So <laughs> it was actually tightly 
a lot of the development was happening at the same time as Kellogg. I was going to say because... And that the, was related. The, so Adventism has literally shaped history. Oh, yeah. If you go on to, there's a Business Wars podcast about the Kellogg's and the Posts and Battle Creek, Michigan, and uh-huh. all the history of that, if you want to check that out, it's fascinating. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, he was basically, in his mind, he was healing people of dyspepsia because everybody was eating these fat-rich diet of pork and all this stuff, and they were uh-huh. getting indigestion, and his thing was a vegetarian diet and whole grains, and they had this sanitar- a sanitarium. Sanitarium, yeah. Yeah, that people would go to these retreats to, like, get better. Yeah. And there was some definitely, Kellogg was, he was definitely. He believed what he believed. He believed what he believed. There was some stuff that he was very controversial on. And some of it you look back on and you go, what in the world? But he was just like everyone. He's a product of his times, right? Right. We forget (laughs) that looking back a lot of times. Yes, we do. Yeah. Yeah, Some of the stuff, but he was very much forefront. And so that was a lot of the same, that kind of got put into that culture of your body is the temple of God type of ideas. And so if that's the truth, then you better take care of it really well. And so that's how that sounds nice. all that health stuff got really into it. And somehow with a lot of that stuff, they were very much coming up with ideas that have then since in the last few years, even being proven true. They understood, they could see the cause and the effect, but they didn't know why. But very much like what we were talking about earlier. Cause and effect, you know, like not knowing why, but really looking for Oh yeah. Using what you know, yes. using what you believe to yes. really kind of try and explore. <laughs> yeah. Well, why? There's a lot of that stuff. And so yeah, vegetarianism was a large part of that. And then there were those that were and I think probably partly that was a next step. Out of, you know, so if you're taking the full Ten Commandments, then you go with the whole unclean and clean meats and all that type of stuff. All of that was tied into that whole culture at the time. Well, there seems to be, I mean, a thread between many churches that I'm familiar with of absolute truth being contained inside of a code of laws that are contained in some version of the Bible. Yeah. And so it's like that's an underlying assumption of the system is that, well, the Ten Commandments are obviously true because they were handed directly from God. Yes. All right. So most of Deuteronomy and stuff like that, it was, okay, if that's true because that's in the word of God. And then you wrestle with, Mm -hmm. what does that mean now? How does this work in today's society when we're not in ancient Judea? You know, that kind of thing. Mm, Um, Yes. But. Like what's still applicable? Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's like you said, it's constantly being rewritten, but there's, there's certain things that people don't want to challenge because to challenge would actually undermine the entire system. Oh yeah. Well, and that's why I deconstructed. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that was, that was the, I was presented some things. Deconstruction meaning... Basically going back and looking over your belief system and how it formed and why it formed. So you're basically, you know, like you're deconstructing, you're tearing it apart and seeing what's it actually made of. Oh, okay. And yeah, it's usually pretty destructive because you start finding out things you didn't realize. (laughs) 
so like underlying assumptions that you had about the world because you were handed a set of beliefs that you never challenged. You know, it started pretty simply with being presented, you know, here's where the Bible contradicts itself. And if it's infallible, what's going on here? Right. Mm -hmm. And then going further and eventually for me, it was even like so much of the stuff is like building on itself. Right. If you believe the Bible, well, the reason that you believe it is because it says so. Because the Bible says it's true. Yeah. And therefore, it's true. It's circular logic. Right. Now, a lot of people listening who happen to be Christian are going to actually really take offense at that statement. And pretty much everybody else is going to be like, duh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. But for me, it was just, that was my journey was looking at that stuff and going, and very much logically, you know, not trying to like, get into some cult or anything is very much, you know, a logical process of, okay, if this, then that. Mm -hmm. And also trying to figure out what stuff I valued. And so, okay. Like Christianity in general, like general beliefs, I very much align with. Okay. Like what? That's just kind of ingrained. Like I would say, you know, Kind of like the golden rule type of thing, uh-huh. or the do unto others as you would have them do unto, do unto you. you, or uh, which isn't necessarily biblical, but it's kind of that. True, it's based around those principles. I mean, it's based around love the Lord the God and, and love the neighbor as thyself. Right, right, and mm-hmm. it's just all that stuff. Right, is what that's based around. And so I still very much find myself with those values. But I was looking back and finding out these different things about that whole system that didn't make sense, even like to where the Bible came from. It was just like, you've got this whole Protestant movement that's speaking out against Catholics because of the control and everything else that they had done and all the perversions to the system that they had done. And yet then they turn right back around and go, they were more right about certain things than they even knew they were right. So, in other words, like a meta, right? Like, yeah. I mean, so some like, of the things that they were saying that ended up becoming, are you saying like that ended up becoming a part of Protestantism? Like some of the well, things okay. on the 99 theses were, could be considered so critiques pro- leveled at what became Protestantism. So most Protestantism adopted sola scriptura, right? That's true. And so that's basically saying, you know, the scripture is absolutely correct. This is the most perfect version of letter from God type of thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, the Catholic Church wasn't even willing to say that. Hmm. And a lot of Protestants, at least for me growing up, was like, oh, yeah, the Catholic Church is so messed up because they don't even believe that. Right. (laughs) Well, but here's the funny thing. Who decided what was in that canon? Yeah. The Catholic Church. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The Council of Nicaea. And so basically it's, and that happened many, many times. Uh-huh. It changed over hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Basically, you get this whole dichotomy where a group of people go, this is absolutely correct. But the people that put it together weren't even willing to make that statement. Yeah. And so that kind of weird dichotomy, you know. Well, it's like uh, the first three Star Wars episodes don't exist. Even though they came from the mind of George Lucas. I mean, there couldn't be a more like direct divine inspiration yes. example. Yes. And it's like, but no, we don't like these. So they don't count. Yes. Yeah. It's that whole situation where it's like, you know, that kind of whole group mentality 
of basically deciding something. And then so many years after, it's just become so much an accepted truth that almost no one even really thinks about it. When, if you, you know, think you do about at some it. point at one point in your life, but you really don't dive into it and figure out where did this even come from? Well, and there's a reason for that because a lot of people who start to ask certain questions get marginalized or like create concern. Oh yeah. Within the group. Like, oh yeah. Well, you know, when you ask those certain questions, you start going down that road. It's a slippery slope. A slip. Yes. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I mean, there is certain lingo within the subculture. I think it's, it's pretty much flows across the board. And that that's one of them. I mean, these ideas that, so it's either you get, if you embrace that difference, then you're marginalized. You're, you're black sheep. But yeah. if you if you say, I'm struggling with this, I'm really having a hard time. It's like, I'll pray for you. Oh, yeah. But even then, you start getting some of that potential marginalization from certain groups. Yeah. And I mean, what just happens- even the idea that you're, you might have a question about it is just like for those that are in it and they're solid. <laughs> Yo, that that even questioning it is dangerous. And well, and you know, not to say that everybody in a church, I know a lot of people who have some sense of maturity in their life who are actually able to say, hey, I wrestled with those questions, too. And Mm -hmm. sort of that idea that God is big enough for questions. Oh, yeah. And those are the people I admire that I've met in churches who have that sort of openness. But you find there is sort of this there is this reaction that happens. I mean, especially when there's certain implications to having that new way of looking at things that now puts you firmly outside of the group. In your case, like I've known, as long as I've known you, you've been cool with drinking beer. Yes. And in some church groups that would be like, you know, not cool. Yeah. The group that I came from was definitely teetotalers. Yeah. And so things like that, in terms of behavior, if you believe, well, I mean, this is actually, you know, hey, Jesus turned water into wine and, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. cool with this. And so you don't have a problem with it. But within certain groups that could actually threaten your social status. Oh, yeah. No, almost hardly anyone in my church growing up would drink. Mm -hmm. And those that did, you know, you didn't know for sure if they did or not, but you thought they did. <laughs> <laughs> so there's sort of this undercurrent of judgment happening. Like, oh, we kind of think he's kind of, mm, you know. <laughs> yeah. But, it, um, you know, I looked at all those things that they said, you know, supported. I mean, they had one of those, you know, you go through the pre-made Bible studies or whatever. This is what the church believes. And I go through it and look at all those texts that they quoted and they didn't say what they said they said. Once you put them into context. Like you read the surrounding verses and whatnot, and it was not that way. The Bible preaches moderation. It didn't preach anywhere teetotalism. Abstinence, <laughs> right. Yeah. Bible actually doesn't preach abstinence. Um, but, you know, and I mean, I do think that that movement came out of, to be fair, the teetotaler movement came out of seeing the destruction that was happening in a lot of people's lives when alcoholism would become a huge problem. Oh, yeah. I mean, you kind of see that in the movie Saving Mr. Banks, where her her daddy issue is that her daddy drank herself to death. And so Mm. there's and that was a big part of the 1800s. I mean, that was kind of it was like this like allure of, you know, sin and debauchery and all these things. And it was like people in those groups saw it as like, you know, a real scourge upon society. And so 
maybe in wrestling with that, you sort of develop this like reaction to it. Oh yeah. Culturally. Definitely. And so Definitely. these groups that are, that have this strong code of ethics, they codify around this belief that we don't do that. And so yeah. you try and discourage, use that social pressure to discourage your son or daughter from becoming a wayward. Well, and it, I mean, it got so much momentum that we had the prohibition. That's true. And then we found out that when you make something forbidden, it, it creates a lot of appealing. problems. <laughs> well, it makes it more appealing, but it also creates a lot of problems because something that isn't necessarily horrible for a huge set of people now is illegal. And so now you've got all this crime that starts building up around something that's kind of minor in yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, if we'd stuck with it. Sure, I guess DUIs and all that type of stuff would be a whole lot less, but, you know, it's, it's kind of the punishing everyone because of one person screwing up. Well, you know, you kind of, <laughs> I mean, that could, this could tangent into a conversation about what is actually the greatest good could tangent into conversation about personal choice and, you know, when does a personal choice affect the group and, mm -hmm. you know, basically all kinds of ethical and philosophical conversations oh, yeah. that, I mean, are really deep and heady and hard to solve for. Oh, yeah. Um, but within a group or a system, I think those collective experiences also tend to play into why things are so hard to change or question. Because people have this assumption that, well, if, if Uncle Benny was such an alco raging alcoholic, then I'm just never going to touch it. If that's like your emotional reaction to the topic of Leo having a beer. Yeah. Then, you know, if that's what that means, every time I think of Leo and beer, I think of you becoming Uncle Benny. I mean, there's going to be a strong emotional trigger to me wanting to, if I love you as a like family member, I'm gonna, I want to protect oh, yeah. you. I want to yeah. I want to keep you within the fold because I don't want you to go away and be this prodigal son and, you know, all that yes. kind of stuff. Well, and I would say I would go further with that and say, I think that's a lot of what we're seeing in our politics as far as partisanship. I'm not going to get into sides right now. Right. But you see this partisanship. Partly in because everyone has their analogies from their group that they go with. That's right. And so if you look at like the insurance issue, you got people on one side that are seeing tons of people that are suffering greatly. Mm -hmm. Then you go to the other side and you see people that would be suffering a whole lot more than they are now. And I have friends that have been hurt by changes in insurance and whatnot, even under the previous changes. And so you've definitely got all these analogies and experiences and neither side is not true. You know? Yeah. There's validity to both points of view. Yeah. There's a caution in not wanting to become so one size fits all that people are standing in long lines to get healthcare and waiting months and months. And yes. like, you know, the argument of, well, look at the postal system. Would you like your healthcare to run as inefficiently as the postal system? Yeah. You know, and how miserable all those people that work there could be. Maybe I don't want to make that broad sweeping assumption. I wouldn't say postal system. I would think more DMV office. DMV. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Like the DMV. Look at how miserable the DMV experience is and how slow it is to change. Do you sure you want that in your healthcare? Versus, hey, let's look at people who are literally not able to afford a doctor visit. Yeah. Because the cost overrun in healthcare has gotten huge. And you could yes. argue, argue over the reasons. I mean, in one case, like a hundred years ago, you just pay cash for the doctor and it wasn't that expensive because you didn't have the healthcare system well, you may not driving even, up cost, right? You may but, not even pay cash. You may pay in food. 
<laughs> because you're a farmer. <laughs> Bartering system. That's outside the box, Leo. I know. <laughs> but yeah, and so you do. You end up with these inefficiencies in a system that build and build and build until something becomes so sluggish and unchangeable and everybody's point of view becomes so fixed that you do end up with these camps and these denominations and these splits and these schisms of like in they're over the littlest things in churches i mean is church on saturday or sunday like come on really like the idea yeah, but of, is that little the idea i mean if you could boil <laughs> That's it the down hard part is some people see things as little and others see them as huge if you could boil it down to the spirit of just like hey we all need a day off Yes. Oh, yeah. I think everybody could agree with that, right? But then it's the how, and it's the dictating, it's the control mechanism that, I, I don't know, I think that's the part that people who don't like religion object to that sense of, like, control. Yes. And people who really find solace in religion are actually finding a sense of comfort in the known, and then the groups being, you know, stable, and not so, like, anything could happen. You know, like, things yeah. could just change, and, like, the whole thing could be different. Like, some, I, I, I think there's, that's that's part of the struggle we're in in society right you know in in general people need different things and not everybody's a, a cavalier not everybody's you know trying to yeah if we could if we could align ourselves more around principles the way i like to abstract things principles make a whole lot more sense than codified dictates right because situations change but usually principles don't need to change as much because they're based on something that's kind of the core idea, not the application of the idea. Do you think that plays into a little bit the need for guidelines underneath the development of AI, artificial intelligence? Like in the three yeah, laws. Yeah, I mean, yeah, as as Asimov's three laws. Yeah, like yeah. one of the things is the value for human life. Yeah. Protecting that because it's kind of in our best interest, right? And I don't think we should really have killer robots, but it's going to happen. And that's freaking scary. <laughs> you know? Well, we've already had it. Right. But I would say that's more based on programming, not AI. <laughs> True. But the AI, so yes. the, but yeah, see, the AI becomes out of our human control, and that's where things get murky. Yeah. No, I, I slippery think, slope. Slippery slope. And on it, I kind of agree with Science Mike on that edge where, you know, if AI was to truly become sentient, it would outpace us so fast we wouldn't even be hardly a blink in its eye, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it... It, it wouldn't care about killing us because we're not even worth noticing to some degree. So, but at that point, does AI, I, mean, I don't want to tangent on this too hard, but at that point, does yeah. AI become conscious? I mean, what is conscious? Um, then are we its creator? You know, are we, are we God to it? Like, there's so many questions. Oh, yeah. There's so many questions. So you deconstructed. Yeah. And so you're going through and questioning these fundamental beliefs that you always just sort of assumed with the group, like this, the Bible is true. Yes. Um, and from what you mentioned science, Mike, I really enjoy the liturgist podcast for anybody who's going through a deconstruction, go to some of the earlier episodes that talk about that. Yes. Um, you know, I wish there was things like that 15 years ago when I went through a deconstruction, uh -huh. what I've, what I've heard from a lot of people and what I personally experience a little, but I, I know talking to you that you've experienced a lot is there tends to be a sense of isolation and sometimes even depression that can come along with losing your religion. Yeah. Well, I mean, to some degree it's, it's losing your culture. 
because it's stepping away from something that was so sure. And so, I mean, it was a foundation that you were built upon as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so it's just, and so you step away from all that and then you don't have your culture that you were kind of a part of as stability as well. And so, yeah, it's very much to some degree, you know, I wouldn't say necessarily lonely because I've gone through it with people, mm-hmm. but it's definitely kind of that alienating thing. And there's all the pressure in your mind because there's, how do you tell this to family without them crying every night because you're not saved anymore or whatever. Right. And so there's all that going on. Fortunately. um, So for you, you're just fundamentally checking your proof. And for a family member, it may be like, Hey, you, you are in danger your soul might not make it. Yeah. Because we've basically, we've created these systems that are so, how do I describe this? Wrapped up in themselves. Mm-hmm. And self-replicating because it's basically like, if you're not part of us, then you're in danger. Or you're lost. You're lost. Yeah, and that was the big that was the big shift for me was like leaving what I would call evangelical culture and the idea of the world evangelism is, you know, we have this great commission to seek and save the lost like Jesus did the lost sheep. So anyone yes. who's not and the, and the the extrapolation is this vis-a-vis like anyone who's not a part of our faith belief system and hasn't said the sinner's prayer is lost yes. and in danger. And in my growing up there was hell. So, which was a really great motivator for certain people. Like, (laughs) if you get this wrong, this question on the test, then you're going to eternal torment for the rest of eternity. Yes. And so I remember, like, when a friend died, like, I remember being just totally in tears because thinking, like, oh, my God, like, he wasn't a Christian. Like, he's in hell right now. Like, yeah. And then something opened up for me where... I sort of questioned that like everything I personally feel like is true in the limited experience I have with what seems like my experience with a God, if you want a God, if you want to call it, that doesn't feel true to me. Like that doesn't feel like there's got to be some way where people, it's not just this binary choice. Like if, you know, if there, if there is a loving God, then there must be some sort of like, process or, you know, like, you know, maybe like Jesus going to save that one lost sheep. It's, it's not going to be lost if, yeah. eventually. And, yeah. you know, my views have much changed even since then, but it was like, that was my first questioning of like, what if I don't believe in hell? Yeah. And it's like talking to you and you're like, oh yeah, my church didn't believe in hell like at all. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> that's awesome. Like, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we go that that's metaphor done. <laughs> Yeah. But there's still that whole, you know, and so in some ways you were in a better space because they went through their movement and stepped away from some beliefs. 
but then they got stuck again. Well, but so, so you didn't so, believe in hell, but you did believe that a non-believer ceased to exist. Is that right? Yeah. Right. So there was, you know. The, so annihilation. Yeah. The whole so basically Armageddon the, thing and whatever. And, and so, you know, at some point you cease to exist if you're not part of the saved. But isn't that the same? I mean, from knowing friends who've become atheist, isn't that the same existential fear that people face when they go like, hey, when I die, like I'm gone, like my consciousness is in my brain. And when this organism dies, then that's it. Poof. Oh, yeah, definitely. But it's a it's a better step away from the, you know, the Roman ideas that you go into this eternal torment. <laughs> right. Which was based around the ideas of um, of uh, hell was like a Greek concept, right? Like the, the underworld. Greek, Roman. And then yeah. a, a lot of the current day beliefs actually sprung up out of Dante's Inferno, which was an allegory. Right. And and eventually became codified. You know, a lot of that's those ideas that were literally an allegory all of a sudden become the common beliefs of what's real as like, and now, and that was one of those things that blew me away. It was just like, even though my system had stepped away from it already, just Christianity in general is just like seeing these places where it just kind of broke apart and did these weird things. But if you take away that fear of annihilation or hell, then it leaves a lot more space for someone to be in process. Yeah. To have questions, and those questions don't mean that they're saved or not saved in this moment. It's like, what if, like, in a God view of time, God mode of time, like, you, someone goes through this journey and they end up where they need to be eventually before they die because it's all determined anyway. Like, you don't, I mean, yeah. in the mind of God, quote unquote, like, isn't that, wouldn't that be true? You know, so it's like that comes down to that idea and not to get too theological, but, you know, of like Calvinism versus Arminianism. And I was always like, you know, the Miller Lite commercial, both, <laughs> right? It's like, you know, so if you had an eternal being that was, you know, sort of outside of time and everything had already been, you know, it's like there's, there's this idea of like, is everything predeterministic? Yeah. Or is everything free will? And it's like, well, yeah. To me, like, I think that's part of my ENFP-ness is like this ability to hold multiple multiple conflicting perspectives and sort of like, yeah, it's both and like, it's a possibility that that's one way yeah. to describe it. And it's the other way to describe it. And based on how you're experiencing it, you know, is, is, yes, it's true. Well, I think, I think some of that comes from our kind of interesting interest in the physical and technical things. True. So is white is light. Oh shoot. I'm forgetting the question. Is light a wave or a, Particle. Particle. Yes. Right. Uh, it's both. You know, it's. Yeah. And so all and these. Maybe the wave function is an emergent property or the particle function is emergent property of whatever it is that's underneath that that we don't understand. Yeah. And so yeah. a lot of these ideas that people would get hung up on is like, well, behind the scenes, do we even know really what's driving either of those? Could they both be the same thing, but different manifestations of it? True. Why the hell am I even here? How did I get here? Who, what is conscious? Like, I, every time I keep coming back to that, like I just yeah. woke up and I was this kid and I grew up and like, yeah, but we forget where we came from. Yeah. That's weird. But I think us having those interests in some ways drove some of our development and being able to approach ideas differently. And that's probably partly why we're not so hung up on the things that we had as children um, and grew up with is because we had those other areas in our life that gave us the ability to not be stuck. 
in saying this or that. Hmm. Or maybe it's an emergent property of our cognitive function stack that we must ask how it works and why. Which is just another manifestation, so we're circu circular or logic again. the function stack doesn't even exist, and it's just a model. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, it's just a model. Like, that, I realized, you know, Newtonian physics versus Einsteinian physics versus quantum physics, they're all models to describe a system. It is not literally how it works. It's literally just a description in theoretical Trying to space, explain something. Trying to explain these things that you're seeing, and some of them are helpful. And some yeah. of them fall apart once you get them into like Newtonian physics falls apart when you go to the molecular level. It just does. That to me is always just that thing that to me, there's a curiosity between how do I look at these different things? Yeah. And, you know, I may be like really predisposed to kind of look at something a certain way. And that's cool. That's that's like what makes me unique. That's why I look at it this way. But then I got to be open to ways that you look at something completely different from the way I do. And I can learn from you. Like I can say, oh, I never thought of that. Like. Yeah. I'm not a dominant thinker. I'm a dominant feeler. I'm filtering everything <laughs> through what I personally believe, uh -huh. you know, and what's important to me. So, so, you know, someone else might have a different way of, and that might be challenging for me too. You know, there might be something that you believe like, oh yeah, like, you know, or there's really no, you've told me like, there's really no need for privacy. I don't have anything to hide. And I go, well, psh, like, but what if like the yeah. government like does bad shit and we don't know it till later? Like, you know, well, but have, if the government could not do anything in private- yeah, see, and you just you just flip me at least on part of the argument. <laughs> so, but that's the government, not me. So, yeah. So, okay. So, this has become a really in depth conversation, which yes. I, I freaking love. Um, and you know, I know not everybody listening is religious, and I know some people who are listening are Christian, and you know, people are in various states of belief. But um, I think thinking about this as groups and language helps to frame, you know, our experience because we're social mammals. Yes. There's a real danger in being outside the group. If you're a primate, I think Science Mike has said this, if you're a primate, <laughs> being outed from a group of primates, a troop of primates literally means death. Yes. So some of the mechanism behind fear and anxiety and depression Stems around that, like you said, being outside of your group, like losing that culture yes. bond with family, with people in a church group, or you, you, those are a lot of things that you're doing. That's a lot of the activities that you're having, and that's impactful. It is. But at the same time, it can lead to so much growth. And so it's hard, but in some ways it's also, it can also be really, really good. So like me, you know, I went through and pretty much in a lot of ways throughout the Bible to some degree. But at the same time, now I can look at it in its literary form and it actually brings me back to its principles. Wow. Because now I've, instead of having to try and argue why it's correct, now I can go back and find what does it actually say that makes sense. Right. And there is a lot that makes sense. There's a reason <laughs> why it's impacted so many people. Oh, yeah. It's very compelling. And not just for the reasons that it's become as monolithic itself. If you go back and look at like the teachings of Christ, 
which... Which is my favorite part at, at this point. Yeah. I've got a friend that's dived into a lot of it and studied a lot of, like, how would the Jewish culture even perceive some of this stuff? And so he's actually gone through with Jewish rabbis and looking at the New Testament, which they don't believe. Right. But they can appreciate and see the beauty of. And so getting their perspective, which, I mean, it was written by Jews for Jews for the most part. Mm -hmm. Or new Christians, which were ex-Jews. I mean, it, and so there's a, there's a huge context that Christianity misses because— we haven't been Jews for thousands of years. We're outside that culture. Yes. And it's cool. Like all the Jewish festivals that I participated in, I get so much out of like, I love the Passover. Oh, <laughs> it's so fun. Yeah. Like, and it puts this whole, like, why is this night? Not like any other night. Yes. Because tonight, you know, the Lord God rescued us from Egypt and we yeah. were slaves. And it, there's this whole story that emerges out of this culture. And it's, you're, you're right. There's, there's a context. Yeah. Which these stories came out of, the stories of what Jesus did, they came out of Judaism, like yeah. you said. Well, there's, there was very specific reasons why those authors decided to put down the stories that they did and mention the certain details that they did. They all meant something. Right. They thought there was value in something as far as like, why did they include this? And once you put it back into that context, you get a much richer story and a much richer view of what's going on and why was this Jesus figure so revolutionary? Yeah, revolutionary enough to get executed. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a whole ball of baggage that the why and all the stuff that's wrapped up around that is a lot of the stuff that I've let go of. But, you yeah. Know, but yeah, I mean, that's if you look at it kind of like detached, I think a lot of people have is just kind of going through and looking like, whoa, this dude was controversial. And yeah. why would he be controversial for preaching love? Yes. <laughs> because the system that at the time had gotten so codified and stodgy that now all of a sudden these things that should make sense or people were, ah, I resonate with that. Like, yeah, they were, you know, there were other people who were like, you can't say that. That's blasphemy. And, you you know, it's like this whole. And, and those were the people who said were like the vipers. He didn't. Jesus didn't condemn people who were acting the wrong way or, you know, that were tax collectors and thieves and prostitutes and who needed to have a revelation of something better. Maybe he didn't think about that. He said that the people who were stodgy and religious and telling people what to do and trying to make religious systems into this whole like control system, those were the people that he criticized. Yes. But even a lot of that stuff is hard to talk about in context because True. Christianity from very early on developed the idea of original sin, that we are <laughs> fallen people and innately horrible people, which does wonders to our self-esteem, doesn't it? That's one of the <laughs> things that I've actually really jettisoned. And it's actually one of the things that puts me at odds with most Christians that I'm oh, yeah, close to. Definitely. It has this cascade effect in like almost every way of being. Yes. It affects in, I remember being in a Baptist church on a worship team. I played some keyboard on the side and um, there was this worship pastor and he would like give us the wrong chord changes. And then he'd be like, Oh, I'm such a horrible person. 
Like, oh, I'm so sorry that I, and it was like, I finally said to a loved one, I was like, I can't be around this anymore because I'm unlearning that like self-flagellation. Like I'm trying to find a more healthy version of myself that doesn't berate myself for making mistakes. Yes. And something about this cultural system has made that the go-to for some people. And yeah, well, obviously not everybody, but I mean, in this case, like it was just, I had to realize this is unhealthy for me. I'm trying to grow beyond this and I can't stay around it anymore. And it does boil down to original sin. Well, and the thing is that, that idea didn't become popular and wasn't even mentioned until pretty much all of what we know as the New Testament was written. Until after that. Until after. So the whole construct of original sin didn't exist and what definitely wasn't mainstream until after all that stuff was written. It wasn't an underlying assumption while the writers Correct. were writing it. Correct. That's huge. And so that means yeah. we are misinterpreting everything. It's like a, it's like, yeah, it's like a color that we're putting on. <laughs> and so, but it gives you this whole, all those interactions where he's talking about sin and everything. The word sin was literally a term like shooting an arrow and missing the mark. You are trying your best and you're just not quite making it. Hmm. But it doesn't mean that you're not trying. doesn't mm. mean that you're being bad. doesn't mean that you should have never been an archer. Exactly. It means you literally just didn't quite get it that time. Yeah. That's huge. <laughs> and so now I can go back and put all this stuff in. You look at it in original context without the context, which is really hard because I grew up in it mm-hmm. and everything. And so, you know, I definitely need people around me that have the time and resources to go research a bunch of stuff and bring that research to me. But you know, I can do a whole lot too. I mean, you can even go back. Some of the stuff you can go look at Wikipedia and just read the history. Oh, but that's not a good source. No. you know, Then but go back to the source that Wikipedia cites. Some people, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Some people actually, and I admire people who do go to seminary because they're grappling with these issues and they'd like to learn to read yeah. the original Greek, the original Aramaic, you know, the yeah. original Jewish text and Hebrew text, right? And, you know, I mean, one of the things I was going to say was it blew my mind when I had deconstructed and I started reading outside of Bible, that was hard because there's this belief that you don't read anything that's spiritual beside the Bible. Yeah. And so I actually went into a lot of like hiding on like, I'm reading these books. Uh-huh. They're kind of, they're kind of new age. And I don't know if I'm supposed to be reading them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I remember like I, <laughs> out of high school, I kind of quit going to church, but I was on Bible gateway and I wanted to read the Apocrypha. Like, it was so curious. Like, there's these <laughs> books in the Catholic Bible that we don't... And I didn't read them. Because that that admonition was so strong to only read Sola Scriptura. Yeah. And yes. so I couldn't even read the book of Tobit or the book of Enoch or any of those things because, you know, oh, they're not in, they're not in my body. You know, it's like, so what was that? Yes. How strong was that conditioning that told me that I couldn't? Yes. So what I was going to say was, when you said sin, it blew my freaking mind when Eckhart Tolle mentioned the concept of sin. And it was exactly what you're saying. It was about missing the mark. And he talks a lot about ego. Okay. And he talks about ego being the madness that humanity has. This whole thing of like separation of like, and trying to self-preservation, like being like this fundamental bug in humanity. And he talks about sin and it blew my mind because I was like, 
at that point, like sin, the word sin was such a trigger for me. Like I couldn't, I was like, I almost like was like, it was out of context. Like how does, how did this come up? Cause you know, there's this idea that there is no mistakes, which I actually kind of believe like, you know, everything kind of, it's like, we're a play. It's like Shakespeare said, all the world is a stage and we're all players. But you know, at the same token, like it, you know, it was kind of weird to hear that, that kind of idea, but it doesn't mean what divine father or being that creates would create something imperfect if he or it is perfect. Yeah. And so there the whole thing falls apart, right? So it's like, well, what if, for me, the big shift was, what if divinity is sort of like when it says we're all children of God? You know, if we're made of the same nature of God, then there's something inside of us that's wanting to emerge that's wanting to come out through this human experience that is wanting to perfect or be glorious or be loving and harmonious and all those things. And that is the emergent property of the divine. That is the kingdom of heaven. And so we're in essence, like when we come into our true nature, that's when we are shining our light and putting it on a stand Yeah. as opposed to putting it under a bushel and saying, Oh, we're so awful and we're so horrible and we shouldn't really do that great things, you know, cause I can't do anything great, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, I mean, you shouldn't become an egotist, you know, and be totally self-centered, but at the same time, like you have something special yes, to give the world that only you can do. There's something you brought to that project with the Chromecast that, you know, maybe sure somebody else could do it, but you were the person who was there in that, yeah. in that moment. Yeah. And people use it the next day. Like, yeah. fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. you probably save some lives. Yeah. I don't even know, but that's not the thing. You don't have to get hung up on that part. You just got, you had joy in what you were doing and that joy brought goodness to the world. That brought solution, that brought resolution, that brought... But if it was a really good question, I'd say, oh, no, it was all God. And I didn't have any God. part of it. No part of it. <laughs> But see, why? Why do we Which do is that, that whole degrading thing. Why do we do that? Like, what benefit? I mean, I I tend to believe a little bit in psychology, and it's like, that's harmful. Yeah. If you study psychology, and I mean, that's yeah. probably one of the things that is revolutionizing the church is psychology. The church has embraced psychology to a point and really kind of does look at oh, yeah. a lot of those things. And it's because it's sort of based in science, you know, science is starting to come into the church a little bit. And that's well, threatening. Some of it, you can't deny. <laughs> I mean, as far as like, you know, it used to be that if you were depressed, you're not trusting God enough. You don't have enough faith. And that's, we've moved, you know, culture has moved a whole lot. Yeah. And even just 30 years. Further. Oh, 30, yeah. 40 years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it used to be people that didn't talk about mental illness at all. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, that was just, and if somebody had a difficulty, you would just remove them. And from... so there's some of that stuff that you just can't <laughs> get away from because parts of it have become concrete knowledge. Mm -hmm. We know about dopamine and serotonin and different things like that. And it's just like, once you can break it down and really look, study, you know, there becomes a point where you can't just wash it away why what you know well and how much are those like unintended negative belief patterns that come out of this system or culture or religion are they creating mental health issues like you said like, oh yeah like if your self-esteem is low it's like one a psychology 101 it's going to create depression it's going to create sadness it's going to create anger it's going to create these things that we don't 
see as desirable in the human condition. Yeah. Suffering is your, you know, so you've, you've struggled with depression. Yeah. Most of my family has, <laughs> mm-hmm. and, you know, it's hereditary. And then I think being a very independent introvert does not help. Right. Because it does make it really easy to withdraw from society, which even in, for the most part, most introverts still need people. Right. You know, it's it, just because that's not where you get your energy in groups of people does not mean that you don't need it. So in other words, would you say that loneliness? Oh, yeah. Is a big part of it? Oh, yeah. And you've also said that INTPs tend to, as a group, report that they isolate. Yeah. <laughs> My friend told me that they are the most likely subgroup of MBTI to die unhappy. Huh. Along with the, as far as all the stuff they had studied at the time, all schizophrenics were in TPs. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, by the time I learned this, I was well past the, the age, age where, where it sets in. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but... So you said there was some sort of connection between anxiety and depression. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast on the way driving here. It's a self-helpless podcast. It's three female comedians. And I am I started at the beginning just working my way through it. And it's very entertaining. And they were talking about workaholism. And... That is our culture's... It is. Um, ...celebrated vice. Yes. And it's not one that I struggle with. <laughs> in many ways I'm very much the opposite you know procrastination and all that type of stuff uh-huh. is very much a part of who I am right now and I don't like it but you I don't, don't like that about yourself no but because workaholism is a celebrated value in our culture yes and I wish I could remember the name of the book but I believe it was a BuzzFeed auth writer or one of those media companies, one of the newer media companies, they're uh, one Buzz of the- or Vox or something like that. Yeah, it wasn't Vox, but um, she put together a short book that I got for free on Audible. So I listened to it on a trip and talking about burnout and how for millennials and culture today, burnout is very different than it used to be hmm. and how pretty much it, it looks different. And as she was going through this stuff, I was like, oh, I've been burned out for a very long time. Interesting. <laughs> uh, but it no, manifests, I'm relating to this. Tell me more. It manifests itself differently. I remember. I wish I could remember more about it. It's definitely one of those books that I need to reread. But just that finding the energy to get anything done can be really hard at times. Which is also a symptom of Even, depression, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Symptom of depression and how even though I could be doing way more work than I'm doing now, you know, I mean, the idea is that you don't get burned out unless you are working so hard that, you know, your life just crashes around you because you burned out. Mm-hmm. It's very much more just a fabric of us in some ways. Just that constant, I guess it'd be the constant pressure to be a workaholic burns us out in some ways. 
I would agree with that because it's like every time I find myself putting pressure on myself, I don't enjoy the work. I tense my body. I get in pain and that starts a spiral of either migraines or just not liking the work. And then I like, why can't I do the work? And part of my thing is, is that my body's telling me, I don't want to do the work right now. Like this doesn't feel good. And what doesn't feel good is not the work. It's the pressure to do the work. Yeah. And so I've really tried to hack my psyche and say, okay, well, how do I show up with the idea of excitement and alignment to what I'm doing and really work through the things that is, what is it that's bothering me about this for real? Yeah. And that was my kind of epiphany about procrastination. Nine times out of 10, procrastination was a message that I was sending myself that something about this is, I'm looking at it the wrong way. I'm not enjoying this. I'm not... I'm not in alignment with it. What is it? You know, maybe yeah. it's the fact that I, I don't let myself get up and stretch because I have the belief that I have to hurry and do it. Well, guess what? In my work, I'm sitting there for four, five, six hours. So who in the right mind would not get up and stretch? It's yes. not healthy. <laughs> yeah. That's creating yeah. a native feedback loop in my body. And same thing with exercise. Like I don't exercise. Like I don't think to exercise. I haven't been conditioned to exercise. So I'm not eating healthy food. I'm not. So, and then I feel like crap. Yeah. But that's going to create that like negative loop. I'm not getting outdoors. I'm not seeing the sunshine. And sometimes I, I think it's like this emergent property of the system of all of our habits and choices and ways, yeah. we, you know, where our bents and, and, and things. We don't think to challenge them. We don't think to change them up. So not yes. to say that there's not because there is a chemical component to depression, but there's also the antidote to that, which, you know, I was reading this article about how Africans had to send psychologists after the, after the genocide, they had to send some of them home because they said, well, they're not letting us go out in the sunshine and dance. They're making us sit in a room and like ruminate on what happened, which feels awful. Oh yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Not to say like, I mean, I've highly valued psychology, but, um, yes. So what is the connection between anxiety and depression? So one of them was talking about it. I believe it was Taylor Tomlinson um, and how anxiety was kind of the the cause of her depression. And so a lot of the stuff, like for me, a lot of the procrastination, whatever, and the drain of energy, I think, is more just the, uh, the ideas where I've failed. Yes. Are constantly wrapping around themselves in the back of my head. Yeah. And so the places where I think I need to, whether it's valid or not, I mean, it could be valid reasons. Like I really need to get this done and I just haven't, Mm -hmm. but that's constantly going on back there or. And it won't shut up to let you clear your mind to do the work. Yeah. And then, and so then it becomes a loop because I start focusing on that and I can't focus on what I'm doing. And so then I don't get stuff done and then, I don't get stuff done and that's more reason for anxiety and it gets worse and it gets worse and, worse. and I have coworkers and I don't want to let them down. And right. it just, this, you get in this huge whirlpool. Just And what are they going to think? They're probably going to be mad at me. And though I'm probably going to get a phone call at any minute. Hey, how's it going? Is this done? Exactly. Like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's where, you know, in, in some ways I'm so grateful because I have gotten some clients and coworkers that are just phenomenal. And they understand once I finally break down and it's like, I'm so sorry. I just kind of lost it and I kind of disappeared for this week. Right. Right. You know, I didn't get anything done and I'm so sorry. And they've been, okay, I know where you've been. I've been there too. Let's go. Wow. (laughs) And so they're ready to move on and not, you know, keep that. The shame loop. 
Yes. Going. Yeah, absolutely. I think that idea and I that you're a bad huge. person for not having accomplished work in the last three hours. It's like, okay, well let's, let's work now or yeah. let's take a break or let's, yeah. And exactly that. That's, that's huge to have coworkers like that, that are able to. Well, it's even understand. huger to have clients like that. Yeah. That's something that's really helped me. Good. Is having that. But at the same time, you know, it, <laughs> it doesn't, it definitely at those moments takes us the pressure off so I can then get back into the frame of getting stuff done. Mm -hmm. Well, and getting what done? Like that's also the other thing too, is I think a lot of times we end up in the, not that you're in the wrong thing, but we end up in the wrong thing or the wrong thing for us or the wrong project or, you know, just, just doing a part that we really aren't jazzed about and yeah. it has to get done. But does it, you know, does it really have to get done? Like, and you know, maybe it does, but maybe that's the question to really ask yourself is like, why does this have to get done? Why do I want to do this? Why yeah. don't somebody else do this? Like, and that's ultimately, we don't ask ourselves those questions. We don't say, am I in the right career? Am I doing the right thing? It can lead to depression. Am I living in the right yeah. city? Am I, you know, am I accepting circumstances about myself that aren't really serving me anymore. And that's where I try to be like, cause I ended up yesterday in the exact same spot you were just talking about. And literally for me, it was like, it had to boil down to, I was sitting down working on this mix. And then there was a part of me that didn't believe in myself enough to like, I've struggled with getting better at mixing, which I think everybody does. There's this point where you start to actually mix the way you want to, but there's a long yes. road to get there. Yes. And so there's this mix and it's for a big deal. And I, you know, I realized that deep down the subroutine that was running is, is like, I don't really, part of me doesn't believe that I can do this. Part of yeah. me doubts myself that I'm going to, like, I'm the one sitting down and I have the time and I have to sit here and do this and I'm working on it and I do, and it starts feeling good. And then at some point it just like stopped. And I really had to dig down and find out that the feeling was like, well, but a part of me still doesn't, still remembers all those past times where I didn't believe that I was good enough to make this mix the way I want it to be. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's one area where, you know, like the technical creation, like my area of creating and yours crosses because we're constantly striving for, for perfection. And yet that is not a thing that exists. <laughs> Something I learned from there, software. Iterate. There, there is no static version thing called perfect. Yeah. In our fields. Yes, it could be working. There's always something to optimize. There's always something that could have been better. Well, and you know, what was kind of occurred to me with this is like this idea of a soft launch to the mix. Like I need to beta out this mix. Like it's at a point where I can get it pretty good. And then once I get it to that point, why don't I show it to a few people? And then rather than deliver, like, I mean, I can show well, it to the client. Get whatever. out of our own heads. Yeah. <laughs> like, like at that point, why don't I start showing it around? And then if it needs, a, if it needs a change or two, we can still make that. We're not releasing it yet. Like, yes, but there's this idea that, you know, you, do you have a release date? Like why? Like sure. Yeah. Sometimes, <laughs> but not always. And uh, yeah. So I could see that the anxiety kind of playing into the depression. To me, there was always yeah. this idea that anytime I was upset or frustrated with the situation, or person when I grew up in somehow I internalized this message that it was never okay to be angry with someone or something. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, growing up as a child, it was okay to be angry at myself. Yes. Yes. And so I would misplace that anger and then it would become sullenness or depression because it would feel like, well, something's obviously wrong with me. Well, I think, 
going back to foundations as far as religious stuff, the original sin encouraged all of those types of negative thoughts. It was definitely, uh, yeah, reinforced it. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was, I mean, the same thing for me is just like, I can be going along coding stuff and then I just make the stupidest mistake. And it took me three hours to find that mistake. And that will just, I will just go off on myself, basically, you know, just internal mental Suicide and not yeah. suicide, but it's just like, <laughs> right. Like, flagellation. like, like <laughs> annihilation. Like I'm, I don't deserve to, I, I, I fucked up this one little thing. I don't deserve to be here. Yeah. It's just like, like that happened to me fucking yesterday, man. Like it was like the stupidest thing. Like I, I, like I have the time I'm sitting on this work. I'm grooving on it. All of a sudden I'm not. And then all these judgments came in and then I just felt like, yeah, awful. Like I felt like, you know, and it was like, and then that, but, creates more anxiety and it makes it harder to get where you're trying to go. I don't think you, and here's the irony, I don't think you have to be religious to have experienced that. Like I feel like almost that is the artist artist archetype, right? That's like the way everyone thinks of the struggling artist. And you know, there's so much, oh, are people going to like, oh, this work is horrible. Oh, it's great. It's horrible. It's great. And it's like, why as creatives do we struggle so deeply? Is it because we're trying to make the, Michelangelo painting and we're because we're trying to make such a classic thing that's our standard that like everything else falls short of that is that is that why is it we've accepted this lie that art is perfection and that you know we is there this thing of like we're trying to reach for this ideal divine kind of thing and that that drive is part of humanity but it's also we're never going to achieve that like mm-hmm. yes and probably right but what yeah I mean we all as artists struggle with depression we yeah. all struggle with these thought loops and these 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 moments of turning on ourselves against ourselves as a as a creative. Yeah. How do you how do you manage that? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I did. Uh huh. It's that's one of those hard things because it is such a cyclic thing where mm-hmm. once you start down that road. Like you mentioned all those questions earlier that where you just ask yourself, like, why am I doing this? You know, what am I trying to uh, do? And all these different things. Mm. Like if you actually stopped when you get in one of these thought processes, stopped and asked those questions, that would probably be enough to break you out. It could be. Or just stop and go outside. Yes. I'm learning asking those questions. Asking those questions refocuses you. And now you might start having fun again because you remembered that, oh, I enjoy doing this stuff. Yeah. Or you know what? Hey, I enjoy doing this stuff. And uh, this very second, I don't enjoy doing this stuff. So I'm going to make some coffee. Yes. Like giving yourself permission. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. I learned that in cognitive behavioral therapy, by the way, because loops, mental loops are self-reinforcing. So there's this idea in business of like the virtuous cycle where you want to make something that's like feeding uh, a positive pattern that you want to reinforce. So there's okay. very much true that there's this negative cycle that we can find ourselves in where it's like every loop around the circle is adding to the the vortex of like black hole, right? So, I mean, it could be as simple as, you know, 
getting out to socialize and maybe there's such a barrier for that or it's not happening and that's just every time around the every week it gets worse or like it could be around you know nutrition it's like you're feeding your body bad food and so like for me it's sugar if I have too much sugar I start getting really brain foggy and then that reinforces like I sit down to the work I can't focus and then I that exact thought of like the client needs it and I should do it and I should stay up late and I should try and finish it. And that just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And it's just this whole crash that happens. So yeah, asking, asking those questions. And that's one of the things I hope to explore is like, yeah. what are some of the life hacks that people have to, you know, really thrive as creative? This is like, you're not going to stop creating yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, that's the thing is like, I've threatened to quit music like three or four times already because things have been so hard. It's like that burnout you're talking about. But it's like, ultimately, yeah. like if I did stop that, I really say be even more unhappy with myself because oh, yeah. this is what I love to do. And so it's been for me, it's like running toward the podcasting because it's something I love. It's like it revitalized so much for me around the music. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've been through several different careers doing sound system installation, which was, you know, definitely like hands-on type work or doing IT work in a doctor's office or teaching. And then pretty much in all those different things, I've done programming to complement what I was doing. Yeah. Because I saw a problem and I knew how to fix it with code. Uh-huh. And so I did. And so uh, definitely coding is very much a part of who I am, even though I'm not a code monkey. I don't, mm-hmm. I'm not a nine to five coder. When perhaps, <laughs> perhaps applying that skill set that you have and that desire you have to problem solve in all these different arenas is maybe what's going to help you converge something that coder who sits in a room drinking Mountain Dew in the dark all <laughs> night is not going to ever think of because they're not in a classroom. Oh, yeah. Because they're not at the Magic Castle watching something and it's those connections that you make between all these different things that the connections we make with each other across all these different things yeah. that spark maybe this conversation we had sparked something for someone that you and I will never know about oh i'm sure it will it has because to in a lot of ways i mean was like what i learned from speech class you know back in high school is fields of experience okay when to convey something to someone, you need to have something that crosses into their field of experience. Brilliant. And so the wider your field of experience, the more ideas you can come up with just because there's more there to draw from. I used to love this show on A&E called Connections. And it was with this British guy and it was like, started out like this. How did the frog help invent the light bulb? (laughs) (laughs) and they'd go through like frog legs and batteries and how they discovered batteries because of the electrical charge and the the, you know the dead frog's leg would move because and it would go because 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 and then you get to this place you never thought you would go yes i think that's the that's the way i've developed a lot more compassion with myself in terms of maybe being a little bit all over the place sometimes as an enfp right it doesn't matter you're gonna get somewhere and maybe that journey is how you got there. Maybe the fact that I spent so much time in a church gave me something that I needed to experience. Like maybe I wouldn't have experienced music so deeply if I wasn't in a church yeah. setting. You know, the perspective that I bring to that, it it shapes, even if I throw it all away for a little while and maybe come back to certain parts of it or come back. It really shapes 
who you are and your unique gift to the world. So, Well, growing up, I played trumpet. I didn't know that. And so, yeah, 12 years. Wow. From fifth grade all the way through college. I was not phenomenal at it. You know, I was definitely decent considering I did it so long. You know, I had the number of hours of practice in there just to be to that level. But being in that arena of band and how all those different things, that made audio engineering make sense to me. Mm. Because what you're doing technically is what a conductor is up there doing. That's absolutely true. (laughs) You're taking all these different pieces and getting them to blend the right way. Instead of me being up there and pointing at the different sections and telling them louder, quieter, Not all these different that, things, keeping time. Doing church live sound, I would, I was one of the only persons who was aware of making sure that the musicians had quality monitor mixes was affecting the outcome of how well they played. Yeah. You know, like that's important. Like it does, it's uses conducting. Yeah. yeah, that's brilliant. And so because I had all the experience, that made audio engineering a whole lot easier for me to be able to hear a mix because I already already understand the idea of how the things blend because I had 12 years of band doing that. And now I was a player in it, but I was definitely a part of that and seeing what was happening because if you're not aware, then yeah, <laughs> you're, you're liable to... <laughs> <laughs> Now, so you and I could talk for hours. Yes. Uh, That's one of the things I love about being your friend. We just, and that's, I'm glad this came through in the conversation because I feel like a lot of the audience also just loves that kind of talk about life kind of aspect of the show. I kind of want to get into the promo part of the show. You also edit a podcast. Video series. Yes. Video series, but also it's on iTunes as well, right? With Tony. No, I don't do anything with the podcast. I just uh, do the stuff for the videos on YouTube. Oh, okay. He, I actually trained him how to, I, I wrote out a how-to document of doing a podcast. Oh, cool. So, so like I, a programmer, I, program. Uh, I, pro, I programmed my. Uh, Your friend. Pastor, to, friend, yeah. whatever. You know, <laughs> I programmed him to be able to do a podcast by himself. To bottom line, some of this, your pastor friend. So for anyone who's still in a faith transition and who's Christian or doesn't consider the Christian, but still interested in some of the things we talked about, Tony has a podcast that goes into some of these questions of like the Bible and like what contents was it actually written in? And let's, you know, like kind of stuff like that. So definitely check out what's the podcast called? It's Faith Undone. Faith Undone. And it's on iTunes, Google, all this stuff. And is that also the YouTube? No, the YouTube is another part of the organization called ethos church. Okay. And so that's on YouTube and that's the one where I'm actually doing the technical directing or basically switching camera shots and slides and all that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I, we just set that up where I'm actually able to do that in California, even though all the filming and everything is happening in Idaho. Oh, cool. What's the name of your coding company? Data.io. Is the website. D-A, no, D-E-Y-T-A-H. Data. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Data yield. Okay, cool. And um, so is there anything else that you wanted to mention or talk about there at the end? Do you have a, do, are you, you're not very online social. You don't have an Instagram I, or anything like that, do you? I have it, but I don't really do much with it. Uh-huh. As much as I live online, I am not in the social spaces. Yeah. And so it's kind of odd. <laughs> okay. So spell, um, spell the data again. D-E-Y-T-A-H. D-E-Y. T 
T-A-H dot I-O. Dot I-O. Okay. All right. Yeah. So you're not, and, and you're not much on the social spaces. That's true. No. Um, although I, I'm just trying to get better about writing blogs for our main website. Uh-huh. And then hopefully if you go there, you should be able to see some of those, the projects that I mentioned earlier uh, coming out through there. Okay, good. And so Good, good. Well, I know that my wife is going to be wondering when the hell we're going to be done with this. It's dark yes. already. I'm not used to starting at 1.30. But this was really great conversation. I hope that the listeners were able to stick with it, get a lot out of it. It's fun to kind of go a little bit deeper sometimes. And I hope that there wasn't too much religion talk. You know, I feel like that it's where you come from is really a big part of your... Makeup. Makeup. Yeah, your expression. The more you learn about yourself... Uh, the more latitude it gives you to try new things and to experiment with your experience and uh, learn about yourself. So I was glad that I was glad that we could explain coding in a way that might make sense to creative people because <laughs> I, I thought that would be fun. Is there like anywhere people can reach you? Do you still have leolutes.com or anything like that? I do. It's basically. <laughs> but they can email you from there. Uh, just go to just go to data.io. Okay. So and there's contact there. Cool. All right. Well, Leo, thanks for being here. Join us next time on the Language of Creativity podcast, where we make unique connections in the language and operating system of our lives. Talk to you later. Today's episode was edited by Josh Keenan. Music composed by Stephen Levitt. I'm your host, Stephen Levitt. Join us next time on the Language of Creativity podcast. If you like the show, please consider giving us a review on iTunes. Meanwhile, please subscribe and follow our Instagram. Thanks for listening.